Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Alzheimer's disease impacts nearly 6.7 million Americans and is associated with significant morbidity, mortality, and financial burden for patients, as well as strain for caregivers and loved ones. For decades, the treatment of Alzheimer's disease has been based in symptom management. However, since the accelerated approval of aducanumab and lecanemab, there is new hope for a disease-modifying treatment. Pharmacist Haley Thompson will explore recent evidence evaluating the use of monoclonal antibody therapies and discuss their future in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive, disabling disease that is ultimately fatal. As the population increases, we expect to see the number impacted by this disease significantly increase. But this number is not going to be limited to those who are diagnosed with this life-altering disease as family, friends, and caregivers often share the burden of this disease alongside their loved one. This global prevalence has led to exciting new research and prompted efforts to discover disease-modifying therapies as well as cures. It has also contributed to the inclusion of Alzheimer's and dementia and many population health initiatives. This positive inertia has led to new exciting discoveries with novel agents that are offering a new hope for these patients that has us asking, is this MAB on the brain? Today, we are going to be discussing the two most prominent hypotheses for the development of Alzheimer's disease, reviewing the primary literature for these new novel monoclonal antibodies, and talking about what is their role in therapy for Alzheimer's disease. So it's important to talk about Alzheimer's disease because it is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality, as well as a large financial burden, not only for individuals and their families, but also for the healthcare system. And when we're talking about a disease that has such high morbidity, high mortality, and high financial burden, it's important to understand the context that we're discussing this in. And that's 6.7 million Americans in the United States. And as our population ages, this is it's expected to increase to 10 million patients in 2050 impacted with Alzheimer's disease. And as healthcare professionals, it's important for us to be able to help recognize this disease and know what treatments we can offer to these patients to help prevent as much as we can some of the symptoms and disability from this disease. So understanding what Alzheimer's disease is, is very important. And it is a progressive neurodegenerative disease associated with the development of amyloid plaques and tau tangles in the brain that ultimately lead to neuron damage and death, causing atrophy or shrinkage of the brain. This previously has been diagnosed with clinical signs and symptoms, but more recently we've been able to add biologic markers to help us confirm Alzheimer's disease as the specific etiology of the patient's dementia symptoms. We're able to look at genetics, certain biomarkers, including amyloid and tau, as well as brain imaging to confirm the presence of these plaques or changes in brain volume. This has led us to be able to be more specific in our diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And when we start to diagnose people, it's very important that we understand where they are at in their disease as we know this will continue to progress. So classifying patients normally 
starting in the preclinical Alzheimer's disease or in the MCI stages, where we will see biologic changes, but we may or may not see some of those early clinical signs. We'll see this progress as the disease continues to involve more and more neurons to have interference with everyday activities in the severe dementia category, where these patients become dependent on others to help them with almost every single activity of living during their day. And when we think about how impactful this is, it's very important for us to understand what the risk factors are for developing this disease so that we can anticipate and help think about these patients who might need help in the future. So anything above this blue dashed line with the red arrow is going to be increasing our risk of Alzheimer's disease, and anything below the blue dashed line with the green arrow can lower your risk of Alzheimer's disease. And what we know is that age, certain genetic mutations, and being a woman can impact your ability and your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. We'll also see apolipoprotein E have many different alleles. And which allele you carry impacts your ability to clear amyloid protein from the brain and can either increase or decrease your risk of Alzheimer's disease based on which allele you carry. We also see marginalized populations impacted at different rates than their counterparts. Racial and ethnic minorities often have higher prevalence compared to their Caucasian counterparts, and transgender patients have been found to have higher rates of Alzheimer's disease compared to their cisgender counterparts. We've also seen from population health studies that education and higher education, as well as longer education, has been thought to be protective against Alzheimer's disease. Now that we understand some of the risk factors, it's important that we understand what are the two hypotheses for causing Alzheimer's disease. And these are the cholinergic hypothesis and the amyloid cascade hypothesis. And we're first gonna focus on the cholinergic hypothesis, which really focuses on the signaling of acetylcholine to help modulate glutamate excitability in the brain and protect it from some of those neurotoxic effects. So on the left here, we have a diagram showing our neurons releasing acetylcholine, and we have appropriate nicotinic receptors. However, as we move into a brain that has Alzheimer's disease, we see loss of these cholinergic neurons, decreasing the amount of acetylcholine that can be released in the synapse, but also a decrease in the receptor density of those nicotinic receptors. This ultimately leads to a lowering of our ability to have those acetylcholine signaling cascades. This hypothesis has led to the symptom-based treatment that we have been using for decades now for Alzheimer's disease, the cholinesterase inhibitors, as well as the NMDA antagonist. The, colon the cholinesterase inhibitors really helping to block the degradation of acetylcholine to help promote what little we have, enable those signaling pathways. And then the NMDA antagonist working outside of that acetylcholine signaling to help modulate glutamate excitability. From this hypothesis, we do have these symptom-based therapies, but we do not at this point have any disease-modifying therapies, which really led to the growing interest in the amyloid cascade hypothesis and the promise that it offers for these disease-modifying treatments. Now, to understand the amyloid cascade hypothesis, it needs to start with who are the main players. And these are in that lavender box in the middle of the screen here. On the far left, we have our amyloid precursor protein, or APP, in the cell membrane. These will be cleaved by specific enzymes to produce your amyloid proteins. And depending on which enzymes are used, 
these proteins will have different um, propensities for misfolding and then aggregating. And when we see aggregation of these proteins, they can form those deposits and become amyloid plaques extracellularly that are not able to be removed from the brain as efficiently. When we see these begin to deposit, these can then cause further downstream cascades that can cause further neuron death, including the hyperphosphorylation of tau, which is a protein that helps to stabilize microtubules in the neurons and promote healthy functioning of these neurons. When these become hyperphosphorylated, they will change their conformation and become tau tangles that can, in, um, in synergy with the amyloid plaques, produce neuron death. So there's two pieces here that can really change your risk of having amyloid plaque develop. And first, we're going to focus on the production of amyloid protein. On the top here in the light purple, we have more of our normal, our physiological functioning. Alpha secretase and gamma secretase will work together to produce amyloid alpha protein and some amyloid beta. And then on the bottom here in the darker purple, we have our amyloidogenic pathway where we see mis- um, production with beta secretase and gamma secretase working to produce amyloid beta at the sequence of 1 to 40 or 42. And this protein is much more likely to begin misfolding and aggregating than the amyloid alpha protein. So increased production of this protein is associated with higher development of amyloid plaque. The second piece we need to consider is clearance. And when we have our AP... OE or apolipoprotein E, it's important to understand which allele you have as alleles two and three are associated with increased clearance of amyloid or normal clearance, which will decrease your propensity for forming these amyloid plaques. Or if you are apolipoprotein E4 positive, then you have a risk of having decreased clearance of the amyloid protein because this protein has lower affinity for the amyloid. And when we see these plaques build up, we see them further instigate these downstream cascades and cause hyperphosphorylation of tau and speed up neuron injury. So the big things to take away here from the amyloid cascade hypothesis are that it's an imbalance in both your anabolism and your catabolism that can cause the buildup of amyloid protein and the formation of these plaques. It's also amyloid and tau that work together and are implicated in pathology. Both biomarkers are extremely important. So now that we've been able to identify that these biomarkers are heavily implicated in this cascade, what do we know about their role in causing clinical symptoms? And what we've been able to find from some work done actually by colleagues here at Mayo Clinic, Cliff Jack, is that we've been able to see that amyloid beta protein can actually peak decades before we begin to see any signs of clinical impairment, including brain structure changes, memory, or cognition. We'll also see tau-mediated injury begin to increase before we see these signs as well. So this helps us confirm that these are heavily implicated in the upstream processes causing these signs and symptoms later, and focusing on early disease may help us better target some of these biomarkers before they begin to cause these disabling symptoms. This brings us to our first question today. So everyone, please pull out your Poll Everywhere app or respond on pollev.com slash mayorx. My question for you all is which process, based on the two hypotheses that we just discussed, is implicated in the development of Alzheimer's disease? Is it A, formation of amyloid beta protein, B, increased acetylcholine in the brain, 
C, formation of amyloid alpha protein, or D, hypophosphorylation of tau. And I'm agreeing with the majority here. What we're seeing is a large number of people here voting for A, the formation of amyloid beta protein, which is correct. The amyloid beta protein, especially in that sequence of 1 to 40 or 42, is much more prone to misfolding and aggregating. Amyloid alpha is not associated with the same level of misfolding and aggregation. And with the cholinergic hypothesis, it's important to remember it is a decrease in the acetylcholine signaling that leads to these clinical signs and symptoms. And related to D, D is incorrect because it's the hyperphosphorylation of tau that causes the conformation change and later tau tangles. So thank you everyone for participating with me today. So now we've really established we have these two hypotheses. We know that these biomarkers are going to peak before we see clinical signs and symptoms. Why has it taken us until 2021 to have an approved target for this medication? And the answer is in some of the earlier trials that were conducted, we did not see these agents meet their phase three clinical trial outcome. So unfortunately, they did not progress and were not approved by the FDA, but we have seen previous anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies be tested for this disease. There were some issues implicated with those earlier trial designs that I really want to highlight because they become important in discussing the strengths of these new uh, uh, trials. So first and foremost, Alzheimer's disease was not necessarily confirmed in these trials. Patients had dementia and clinical signs and symptoms, but they weren't at this point able to detect amyloid or confirm the presence of these biomarkers. We also saw the inclusion of patients with late phase of Alzheimer's disease, where we have already seen amyloid and tau already exert their impact. This might not be the population where we'll see the same level of clinical efficacy if these biomarkers have already peaked. Before we jump into these new trials and see how we're able to build off of those old trial design implications, it's important to understand two pieces of this puzzle. And the first one being the CDRSB or clinical dementia rating sum of boxes. And this is the scoring tool that many researchers use to understand the cognitive function and the disability or impairment function with Alzheimer's disease. So the healthcare professionals use this in the research system by looking at these six domains and scoring based on impairment, summing these scores together, and then assigning it to a staging category for Alzheimer's disease to understand where they are at and also track disease progression. The second piece of the puzzle that we need to understand before we can dive into this new literature is a very specific adverse event that is associated with anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies, and that is ARIA or amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. And these come in two flavors of either edema or microhemorrhage. And the good news here is that most of these are going to be asymptomatic, despite being fairly high prevalence in our trials. And this is most likely related to the removal of not only the bad amyloid that we find aggregating in those extracellular plaques, but also good amyloid that we can find exerting its normal path, its normal physio physiological functions. And when we remove this from the brain, we can see this cause the edema and microhemorrhages. And this was assessed in the trials and monitored for with the use of brain MRI periodically. So now that we've covered these two pieces of the puzzles, it's time to meet the monoclonal antibodies. And we'll start with aducanumab, which is a recombinant human antibody that preferentially binds to aggregated amyloid and was approved in June of 2021 by FDA accelerated approval. 
FDA accelerated approval was granted based on the results of two identical 18-month randomized controlled trials, Emerge and Engage. Emerge and Engage enrolled a little over 1,600 patients each and focused on patients with early Alzheimer's disease. These patients were randomized one-to-one-to-one -to, -one -to, -one to either high-dose aducanumab, low-dose aducanumab, or placebo. And you might see these asterisks next to the dosing schemes, and that's because depending on the APOE status of the patients, they were designated to either receive higher or lower target therapies within these ranges. If they were APOE4 positive, they were known to have decreased clearance of amyloid and needed to be started per these protocols at lower doses of these therapies because of their higher rate of having adverse effects. There were later protocol amendments to help the researchers target those higher doses, but we will talk about that in a moment. For the inclusion exclusion, some big things here, they looked at patients aged 50 to 85 that had positive amyloid PET and consented to that APOE genotyping. Some notable exclusions here, anyone with uncontrolled medical conditions, history of TIA or stroke within one year, or had evidence on MRI of infarct or hemorrhage were excluded from the trial. Patients on anticoagulants that were um, ongoing or antiplatelets that were greater than 81 milligrams of aspirin were not allowed to be included in this trial. And the outcomes that they looked at were the CDRSB, which was that scoring tool that we just briefly discussed, and secondary outcomes included other assessments for cognitive function and also for daily activities, as well as looking at biomarker tracking. So the result that we need to start with first is baseline characteristics to really understand what patient population we were looking at. And the average age of these patients was 70 with about half being female and the majority being white. But what I really wanna highlight here is that the baseline CDRSB score was about 2.5, which per the CDRSB scoring categories indicates that most of our patients were in the mild cognitive impairment or MCI stage. They had not yet progressed into the very mild dementia. We also need to take a look at the amyloid PET. And the amyloid PET here is what was the surrogate marker that led to the accelerated approval of aducanumab as we were able to see significant decreases from baseline and compared to placebo with the use of aducanumab in both engage and emerge. But when we look at those cognitive scoring tools, we see a little bit of a different picture here. So starting with engage on the left, what I need to point out for all of these trials are that we're gonna see placebo decline and we're gonna see difference versus placebo. But what's super important to understand is that we did see cognitive decline in both arms, placebo and the use of these monoclonal antibodies. We see differences in how fast they declined, but we do still see changes in cognitive function. So looking at the results of engage, engage failed to meet primary and secondary efficacy outcomes with this trial. Emerge, however, did meet statistical significance for its primary and secondary outcomes for the high dose of aducanumab, so that 10 milligrams per kilogram. So it's important to note these differences here. And when we're looking at safety, we'll focus here on the high dose of aducanumab, since this was the dose that was found to have clinical efficacy, we see that about one-third of the patients developed ARIA-E and had that amyloid-related imaging abnormality. We also saw headache, falls, and dizziness associated with the use of aducanumab in this trial. Some strengths that are important to note here are that building off some of those discoveries that we had for design 
implications with our older trials, we included patients this time that had early Alzheimer's disease and confirmed the presence of our target protein amyloid in the patients before starting the trial. However, there are some limitations that we need to note. We did see underrepresentation of racial and ethnic minorities, and these are patient populations that need to be well represented in these trials because we know they are at increased risk of developing this disease, and we need to make sure that populations that are at increased risk, this drug is still going to be safe and effective for these patients. So we do need to see trials that have good inclusion and representation of these populations. We also see a limitation on the generalizability as we see that patients with uncontrolled medical comorbidities, anticoagulants were not allowed, antiplatelets were not allowed, and it really kind of gives us pause to think who can we apply this in in the future when we have such, such strict exclusion and inclusion criteria. We also had some issues with the trials being halted earlier and differences in that cumulative dosing because of that APOE stratification and dose titration that happened as part of the protocol for the use of aducanumab. So you might have heard about aducanumab and the controversy associated with it. And these really are highlighted by three things. The futility analysis that caused the trials to be halted early, and this was made based off of two assumptions that were later found to have been violated, so the trials were stopped early, potentially incorrectly, and there were two protocol amendments here that were made that did not impact Engage and Emerge in the same manner, as Engage was about one month ahead of Emerge and had already enrolled about 200 or so patients before these protocol amendments hit, compared to emerge. So we could see the differences in conflicting results coming as part of these protocol amendments. But it's hard to kind of say what is the full efficacy of aducanumab when we have one trial that says it is efficacious and we have significant results, and one trial that says we do not have significant results. So right now, we have some controversy surrounding the use of this medication based on the trials that we have currently available to us. But the big takeaways are other than those conflicting results, for both Emerge and Engage, we did see that decrease in amyloid burden on PET, which led to the early approval and accelerated approval of aducanumab. So next, let's meet lacanumab. Lacanumab is a humanized IgG1 antibody that preferentially binds to the oligomers and protofibrils, which are the conformations of aggregated amyloid that are thought to be more neurotoxic in and of themselves and it received accelerated approval in January of this year. And that accelerated approval was granted based on the results of this phase three clinical trial, Clarity AD, that was conducted over 18 months, where about 1,800 patients with early Alzheimer's disease were randomized to receive lecanemab or placebo. Some notable changes to inclusion exclusion, although these are very similar to what we saw for Emerge and Engage, we did see the allowance of patients on anticoagulants and on antiplatelets in the Clarity AD trial. The outcomes examined were also very similar to Emerge and Engage. The CDRSB was still our primary outcome, and secondary included the biomarkers as well as other measurements of cognitive function. Looking at our baseline characteristics, again, we see that the average age was about 71 years old and half our patients were female, and the majority were white. 
However, something to point out here that is different from eMERGE and ENGAGE is that the CDRSB at baseline was over three for these patients, which means we had fewer patients in the MCI stage, that mild cognitive impairment, and more moving into the mild dementia stages. So at baseline in Clarity AD, we did see patients included with higher level of impairment at baseline. Looking at that surrogate marker, the amyloid PET that led to the accelerated approval, we did see statistically significant decline in amyloid at 18 months with lecanemab compared to placebo. So again, showing that we are able to target the amyloid protein in the brain and allow and facilitate for its removal. For the clinical endpoints, looking at the primary and secondary outcomes, lecanemab met all of these outcomes, and we did see a difference in placebo and lecanemab of about half a point, which means that for these patients at 18 months, they were scoring half a point less impairment or about 27% less decline in cognitive function compared to those that were treated with placebo. So again, some exciting results that we'll just need to make sure we're always looking at the context of, which we'll talk about in a little bit. For the safety results here, we did still see ARIA occur with lecanemab use. However, it was at half the rate that we saw in eMERGE and ENGAGE. And we did see the additional side effect of infusion-related reactions with lecanemab. They did treat about half the patients with subsequent infusions with some of our pre-medications that we'll use for infusion-based reactions, which did help prevent some of these later on. We saw, again, similar strengths to what we saw with Emerge and Engage, building off of our known issues in some of our earlier trials. But some further strengths that I want to highlight here is that the trial designers did try to recruit a more diverse patient population and did include about 20% of the patients with Hispanic origins. However, we did still see an underrepresentation of our African-American population, which is also a population that we know is at higher risk and need to make sure they are well included as well. But it is important to note that we did see better representation of our Hispanic population. We also saw inclusion of patients on anticoagulation, which just gives us another safety pearl to kind of tuck away and say we have some information for this use. We did see a dropout rate of 17.2% with this trial, but it was within the margin that they planned for, about 20%, because they were concerned with this occurring during the COVID pandemic for people who were missing doses within the first couple of infusions, as well as those who were not able to follow up for all of the monitoring. They wanted to make sure that they still planned for these dropout rates, but we did see a higher dropout rate here. The big takeaways from Clarity AD was that lecanemab did lead to a statistically significant reduction in cognitive decline compared to placebo and led to a statistically significant reduction in amyloid burden on PET. So now it's time to meet our last monoclonal antibody, or denanemab. Denanemab is a humanized IgG1 antibody that preferentially binds to the amyloid beta that is already found in those mature extracellular plaques. They did not receive FDA approval, accelerated approval in January of 2023. However, they did just have their phase three trial end, Trailblazer ALZ2, which offers some pretty promising results in its primary and secondary outcomes, as well as some one-year data that looks specifically at clinical progression. So we are excited to see the results of this trial be released in full publication, as right now we only have press releases. 
However, what we do have is our phase two clinical trial information for Trailblazer ALZ. And this again was an 18 month study that looked at 257 patients with early Alzheimer's disease. And these patients were randomized one-to-one to denanumab or placebo. However, there are some interesting notes um, for the patients in the denanumab dosing protocol. They started at the 700 milligrams given three times. However, if patients developed ARIA after those three doses, they were not allowed to increase their dose to the 1,400 milligrams and continued on at the 700 milligrams. Additionally, when they had their follow-up PET scans for amyloid in the subsequent weeks, if they saw a reduction in that amyloid PET to between 11 and 25 centiloids, patients were allowed to decrease from the 1,400 milligrams to 700 milligrams for their maintenance dosing. And if they saw a second reduction, we actually saw patients switch from denanumab to placebo. So that will have some implications in our interpretation of these results as well. Looking at the inclusion-exclusion, again, very similar to what we've seen with our previous trial, but an important exclusion difference here is that prolonged QTC became a exclusion criteria for these patients, and an inclusion criteria that was new was the use of inclusion of tau on PET. So in addition to looking for amyloid, they wanted to make sure they also saw tau to help make sure we are truly looking at patients confirmed to have early Alzheimer's disease, but not above a threshold of tau that would suggest we have moved into the later stages of disease. We also saw a change in the primary outcome that they looked at with Trailblazer ALZ. They used the Integrated Alzheimer's Disease Rating Scale score. This is a scale that was used in previous trials, though not for any of our FDA-accelerated approval meds or the ones that we have reviewed in this discussion, but it has been used in previous phase three clinical trials, and it offers assessment of both cognition and activities of daily living and impairment there. They also looked at CDRSB as a secondary outcome, as well as other cognition scores and our biomarkers. So looking at the baseline characteristics here, again, very similarly, we see that the age was about 75 on average, 50% were female, but we see that over 90% of the patients included were white. And for our CDRSB, we see even higher baseline impairment with the mean CDRSB of 3.5. So again, still in that very mild Alzheimer's disease, but higher impairment indicated by the average scores here. When we look at the amyloid PET, We do see reduction with denanumab compared to placebo and from baseline. However, we did not receive accelerated approval of denanumab with this result. Um, From my digging, it looks like it's because of some of those changes that they had in the dosing protocol where patients were able to switch from denanumab to placebo. From what I can find, I believe that it's because not enough patients finished the full uh, course one year on denanumab. So we do still see very similar results to what we have seen with our previous trials, but we did not receive accelerated approval. And what we see with the cognitive assessments is that the primary outcome was statistically significant and we saw a reduction in cognitive decline on the IARDS, but we saw mixed results in our secondary outcome. And what I wanna highlight here is that the CDRSB, again, that scoring tool that we've been looking at for the Emerge, Engage, and Clarity AD trials, we do not see a statistically significant result for this measure. Looking at safety again, we still see higher rates of ARIA and we do see infusion-related reactions with the use of denanumab. 
Some strengths of this trial, it's important to note that they did use two biomarkers, both tau and amyloid on PET to confirm the presence of Alzheimer's disease. And for some limitations, we do still see the underrepresentation of ethnic and racial minorities. And this may be at our, at our highest level in this trial with over 90% of the patients being white. The small sample size also limits some of our ability to interpret these results as well as the heterogeneity that we saw in the denanumab dosing. And by week 56, we saw that over half the patients switched to placebo dosing. So they did not complete the full 18 months on the denanumab. We also do not have a minimally clinical important difference established for IARDS, which does limit some of our ability to use it, but it is a validated research tool that has previously been utilized in studies for Alzheimer's disease therapeutics. So some big takeaways from denanumab are that we do see reduction in amyloid burden and global tau, and we do see significant reduction in cognitive decline on IARDS, although we do not see a significant decline currently in CDRSB. Again, the phase three trial that was just released in the media has some very promising results, including a statistically significant reduction in CDRSP, but we'll be awaiting further full results to be published on that. So now that we've covered these three monoclonal antibodies and four different trials, it's really important for us to kind of put these all together and understand what can we be considering as healthcare providers when we're comparing these therapies. Starting with clinical efficacy with the change in CDRSB from placebo and baseline, what we're looking at is a 0.5 difference at our best score, or 27% reduction in cognitive decline compared to placebo, and that is with lecanemab. It's important to note that Engage for aducanemab and Trailblazer ALZ for denanemab did not have statistical significance for these measures reporting in this table. So lecanemab is currently offering our best clinical efficacy. However, there is still controversy in debates in how clinically significant is this result. When we're talking about a scoring tool that goes up to 18, we have half a point that we're looking at. However, it's important to note that this is not a linear score, so it's difficult to interpret half a point earlier on in disease where you do not have as much impairment compared to half a point difference later on in disease might be a totally different scenario for our patients. So it is still controversial. How clinically meaningful is this result? But we do see the efficacy here. It's also important to point out that for the safety outcome, placanumab has about half the rate of ARIA compared to aducanumab and denanumab. But for dosing, it does have more burden for patients needing to present for biweekly infusions compared to aducanumab and denanumab, which can be dosed every four weeks. We also see significant cost associated with these medications, about 150 milligram, sorry, $150 for 100 milligrams of lecanemab and $340 for 100 milligrams of aducanemab. So when we're dosing these two based off of weight, we can see the price vary for our patients and it can be difficult to fully estimate what is going to be the cost when we're comparing agents that are either gonna be given biweekly or every four weeks and based on weight and total body weight. So it's important to be considering all of these implications and how is our patient presenting when we're thinking about these therapies. Which leads me to my second assessment question. Based on the clinical results of these trials, what statement correctly pairs the results of these trials? 
Is it A, a significant increase in amyloid PET and moderately less decline on assessment tools? B, significant decrease in amyloid PET and moderately less decline on assessment tools? C, a significant increase in amyloid PET and moderately more decline on assessment tools? Or D, significant decrease in amyloid PET and moderately more decline on assessment tools? All right, and I agree with the majority who are answering B here, or significant decrease in amyloid PET and moderately less decline on assessment tools. So to reiterate some of what we saw here, across all of our trials and all free monoclonal antibodies, we saw reduction in amyloid PET indicating we are clearing this protein from the brain. That was across all clinical trials and all free monoclonal antibodies. And when we were looking at the assessment tools and cognitive decline, we did see a reduction in the cognitive decline compared to placebo. However, this was not, depending on which measure you looked at, statistically significant for all, but we did see this for quite a few of the trials. So thank you all for participating there. And now I want to take it one step further. I have another question for you all where I hope we can take the findings from these trials and some of the inclusion exclusion that we've talked about with these to apply this to a patient case. We have JS, a 75-year-old man presenting to your primary care clinic, asking about this new fun drug, lecanemab. He has moderate Alzheimer's disease, and he has a history of diabetes, hypertension, and a PE for which he's been treated with apixaban. What about this patient's presentation would currently make him a poor candidate for lecanemab therapy based on what we've reviewed from these clinical trials? Seeing some results come in, DOAC, uncontrolled conditions, moderate Alzheimer's disease, anticoagulation, uncontrolled hypertension, anticoagulation therapy. Thank you all for submitting these answers. And I completely agree. The use of anticoagulation has been studied in one trial so far, so it's difficult to say will this be truly safe in our patient population, as we've also seen from the open-label extension trials of the phase three data, there have been some safety signal concerns. We also can think about how patients that had uncontrolled comorbidities, such as our patient is presenting with us, they were not included in the trials. So knowing what is the safety in this patient population makes it difficult to say as he was not included in our studied populations. We also need to think about him having moderate Alzheimer's disease. Is this therapy still going to be clinically effective for him? We have not studied these monoclonal antibodies in such a patient population to say yes or no. So thank you all. And that really highlights that right now what we're looking at is what is the role of these monoclonal antibodies in therapy? We've studied them in patients with mild impairment, with their comorbidities that are well-controlled. And as we said and just identified, we're not entirely sure what the safety with anticoagulation use is. So all of these make it a very narrow window of patients that could be considered eligible when applying these strict inclusion and exclusion criteria that we used for the studies that evaluated these medications. We also need to further consider of those eligible, there could be potential additional barriers such as cost, presenting to clinic for infusions, needing to have significant monitoring done with frequent brain MRIs potentially, as well as potential CSF studies that can limit both patient and caregivers being able to complete this therapy appropriately and be able to complete it safely.
So what we really have from here is that we have established that we have now a therapy that decreases amyloid plaque in the brain. And from this, we've seen modest decline in disease progression. However, it's still controversial exactly what that clinical significance is. And with this new therapy, we can really apply it to a limited population based on the studies that we have currently available to us. But even in that limited population, those that are going to be able to comply with all of the needs for infusions and safety might further limit this window. So it really makes us ask these questions of what additional targets can we add to these therapies that might promote more uh, decrease and decline, as well as more clinical significance for our patients. It also should ask, make us ask ourselves, are we using this therapy at the right time? In patients that already are presenting with signs and symptoms of mild cognitive impairment and early Alzheimer's disease, is it already too late? As we remember from that Cliff Jack graph, we saw amyloid peak and tau-mediated injury peak before we saw these signs and symptoms develop. Mm -hmm. Should we be targeting patients even before they develop these signs and symptoms with these therapies to leverage for better clinical efficacy? And these are questions that are still ongoing in trials currently. We have the AHEAD trial with lecanemab that is looking at preclinical Alzheimer's disease to answer that question of, is this the right time? We also have extension trials going on that are looking at four and five-year data for lecanemab. And we've talked about so much here today. I just really want to make sure that we are able to bring this and tie this all together. As we've talked a lot about the amyloid cascade hypothesis and these new monoclonal antibodies, I just want to reiterate that we still have symptom-based therapies in our cholinergic hypothesis, our cholinesterase inhibitors, and our NMDA antagonists that can still offer symptom-based relief to our patients. While we still evaluate the significant reduction in amyloid PET and the statistically significant decline rate in decline of cognitive decline while we are thinking through what is the clinical significance of MAB therapy. So we have now treatments in both of these hypotheses, and we can work to leverage both of these together to offer the best therapies to our patients. There are also ongoing research efforts outside of the future efforts that I already mentioned on the last slide to look for new targets, including targeting tau, including senolytics therapy, to develop new therapeutic agents that could be used even in combination to these monoclonal antibodies and offer more diverse targeting to say that we are truly working to reduce the presence of this disease. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.